This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mr. Curley stated that Redacted had often spoken about Cerrito to him. Redacted had considerable difficulty with Cerrito on deals, and Mr. Curley stated that he had heard Redacted refer to Cerrito as being wired in with the Mafia. This information from Redacted, according to Curley, was more in a spirit of jest. He doubted if Redacted had any definite information concerning this, but was probably referring to Cerrito because of his appearance and manners. Mr. Curley stated that Cerrito's methods of doing business were a little different from those engaged in by most automobile dealers who are given at times to sharp practices, but none are ever as extreme in their operation as is Cerrito. The legends of the American Mafia are woven into the fabric of American society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the stories of the men of this secret society. They're stories of family, power, wealth, respect, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mob may be over, the stories have become lore and the names remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Members Only Podcast, hosted by history buff and mob aficionado, Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Members Only Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a mob enthusiast and historian. In today's episode, I will finally deliver on the teaser from the last several episodes. That teaser, of course, was that we'd be covering one of the smaller and lesser-known Cosa Nostra families within the United States, the Cerrito family. The Cerrito family, operating in and around San Jose, California, was a significant entity controlling organized crime in the San Jose area for many decades beginning around the 1940s and were in existence until at least the 1990s or early 2000s. This group, which gets almost no publicity in mafia circles and is often thought of as more of a footnote, has a history that ties in with a handful of the biggest events and players in Cosa Nostra history. While I can't say that they were nearly as powerful as any other families around the country, I can certify that they have an interesting story to tell, and I've dug up details, including some previously unseen photos that, at least based on my research, I promise you won't find anywhere else. But before we get into the Cerritos, I'd like to remind you to hit that subscribe button and turn on the bell to get notifications. If you're already a subscriber, please share the show to help my small but mighty Mafia channel grow. If you're listening to the audio version only, please leave a review and let me know what you think uh, within the review. All right, now I've kept you waiting for quite long enough. On to the episode, The Cerrito Family of San Jose. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
let's start with this, and I think you'll really find it fitting. Uh, when I was starting the research for this episode and thinking about the Cerritos, I really kept coming back to an important scene within the final season of Boardwalk Empire, right? Um, you always think about the connection between these real-life events and, of course, the fictional events in the movies and the shows that, that we, as, as uh, lovers of the mafia genre, uh, enjoy. The scene, uh, which I'm about to show you, is a conversation between Charles Lucky Luciano, played by the great Vincent Piazza, and Alphonse Scarface Capone, played by none other than Stephen Graham. Uh, great actors, by the way, love both of those guys. Uh, and Luciano is explaining the changes he plans to make, as well as the expansion of the nationwide crime syndicate under a single governing body and a common set of rules across the entire country. Change is coming. Maybe I heard. But you got a new boss. What do you want me to say? Surprise me. There's better ways to do things. Like how? Running like a business. <laughs> I already got the biggest game going. It's not all about you. It's about all of us, together. Who's us? Italians. I don't know no Italians. Nobly dance, calibrace. What are you again? Not important. Because that's what your new boss wants. All pals. His hand in my pocket? Go anywhere in the country. New York, KC, Boston, Atlantic City. Same understanding, same rules. Nobody worries. Everybody benefits. It's not less, it's more. Atlantic City? Of Albuquerque. And this isn't to diminish any family, including the Cerritos, but the scene emphasizes the point of how effective Luciano's real-life grand plan was when it came to setting the same basic set of rules and structures in place across the country. The plan was pure genius uh, in its simplicity, easy to understand, easy to follow, and not only did uh, almost 30 cities adopt this mafia framework at its peak, but it connected the mafia families who'd previously been what can be best described as localized gangs and or mafia clans like never before. So it became possible for Italian organized crime groups in cities both big and small to coalesce into the Cosa Nostra structure, and because of the connections across the country largely spurned on through prohibition, the mafia across the country uh, was almost doing what you see in businesses, which is churn out franchises, even all the way in San Jose, California. Now, I think we can all agree that some cities were like the major leagues, while others were more like a AAA or a AA baseball franchise, but you get the point. There likely would still have been gangs and Italian organizations in places like San Diego, but uh, you understand that Luciano's structure and the adoption of the rules and customs across the country essentially meant that for a long time, it was a truly uh, more and not less sort of situation for all of the, the families and organizations that chose to partake in this LCN setup. Okay, uh, now that I'm off my soapbox, let's talk about how the Cerritos got started. 
Uh, to give a little background on how the Italian community of San Jose developed, I'm going to share some information from both the California Italian American Project and the Sons of Sicily. The town of San Jose was founded by Spaniards in 1777, and its official name in Alta, uh, California, was El Pueblo de San Jose de Guadalupe. Uh, San Jose was the state capital from 1849 through 1851. Upon California's statehood in 1850, the population of San Jose was a mere 3,500. But by, you know, fast forwarding all the way to 2010, San Jose's population was 1,006,892 people, making it the third largest city in the state. San Jose is located in Santa Clara County, once known as the Valley of Heart's Delight for its orchards and ranches. Today, San Jose is better known as Silicon Valley because of the centrality of the technology industry. San Jose, California has always been the original home to many Italian immigrants since the early 1900s. In fact, Italian immigrants came to the valley and worked primarily in the orchards as well as in canneries. Uh, Italians immigrated to San Jose during three main waves of immigration. The first wave dates uh, from the gold rush to, uh, uh, to end around 1924, with the majority of Italians arriving between 1880 and 1920. The second wave of Italian immigration occurred from the late 1930s through 1965, and the third wave dates from 1965 to today. Uh, so you continue to see Italians coming to San Jose even today. Italian immigrants to San Jose came from many Italian regions, but a majority of them arrived from cities, towns, and villages in southern Italy and Sicily, such as Cosenza and Calabria, Foggia and Puglia, uh, forgive the pronunciation, Napoli and Campania, Tagliacozzo in Abruzzo, Messina, Sicily, and Termini uh, in Marseille uh, in Palermo. Now, getting back to the mafia side of things, it's worth noting that the San Jose family didn't seem to exist when the original commission was set in place in 1931 by Luciano and his Confederates. Now, when I say didn't seem to exist, that doesn't mean that there wasn't mafia or Cosa Nostra there, but a, but a separate San Jose family, from what I could find, just wasn't in place right at that time. Uh, and though I could not locate any reports which suggested exactly how the San Jose organization was spun up, uh, you will see in many reports quite a close relationship between San Jose and the San Francisco LCN family, due, of course, to proximity. Uh, and the San Jose family also, of course, as you can imagine, was close to the Los Angeles family. So here's my thoughts on the potential origins of the San Jose family. And if you're from San Jose and you know different, feel free to uh, clarify or let me have it in the comments. Uh, but one possibility is that San Jose was originally a satellite organization for San Francisco before more or less becoming a family in its own right. Uh, and what I mean is that San Francisco saw the potential opportunities of a growing city nearby and sent in some of their members to, quote unquote, colonize the area, so to speak, for the mafia. 
The other plausible theory, and I don't know which is more likely, uh, would be that a large Italian contingent and even Sicilian mafia had already taken root in San Jose. And I do think that's incredibly plausible. So maybe some aspect of both of these theories could be true. Uh, and then through the natural connections to San Francisco combined with many probable East Coast connections, as well as the national effort to organize and assimilate into one large functioning group with regional satellites. It just made sense to formally establish a family in that city, especially given the city's growth in population. Now, neither theory is substantiated. I'm just qualifying that uh, right above. I dig deep and I couldn't find anything that really uh, gave me the information that I would need uh, to to with, I would say, authenticity and credibility, uh, you know, describe the founding. But I'm just doing my best here as a as a, as a mafia his, historian, uh, and and uh, I know there's a channel called Mob Archaeologist, but kind of as an archaeologist to try to take my my best guess at the situation. Uh, but it's my opinion based on research, and I think some of the information that I'm about to reveal uh, will show you that things probably tended to lean that way. Now, as I said, if you have information or thoughts, send them my way in the comments or via email. As with most episodes where I'm covering an entire family, I plan to stick to the high-end members and the broad details, but of course, there will be, as usual, my ridiculous amount of depth. Uh, now, the thing I kept coming back to during the episode was this, and i it's going to be a theme. If you're going to be a mafia family, why not do mafia-like things? Otherwise... What's the point, right? Uh, it's like being a pirate, but not seeking treasure, swashbuckling, or flying the skull and crossbones. And by the time I'm through with this episode, I promise that that statement will make a lot more sense. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Okay, so I'm just going to say this. Uh, there were not many records of the city's alleged first Cosa Nostra boss, a man named Onofrio Schiortino. Uh, he was a very, very, very hard man to, to pin down. Not only that, but there was nothing, and I mean nothing, from a documentation standpoint, really explaining the origins of the family, which is why I was left to make an educated guess. 
That being said, it's not as if this man, Onofrio Sciortino, did not exist, as I did find him listed in several FBI reports related to the mafia in the area and nationally, uh, so it's clear that he had associations with LCN members. However, while I won't have your typical origin story here, uh, many sources do claim that Onofrio Sciortino was essentially the first major leader of the San Jose LCN family. From the sources I was able to find, Sciortino appears to have been born on April 17, 1891, and according to records from the Statue of Liberty Heritage website, a teenage Sciortino appears to have emigrated from Bolognetta, Palermo, Italy in 1907 aboard the ship uh, Luciana. The record lists him as actually a female, uh, but the age checks out from the few other records that I found, so I actually believe that this was surely him. The first instance that I observed Sciortino show up in the local papers was due to a rather sensational hit on a policeman reported by an Italian newspaper called the La Voce del Popolo out of San Francisco, California on January 7th, 1929. The article itself was in Italian, so forgive me for the loose translation here, but I did take the liberty of, of using uh, Google Assist to translate the article so you could kind of see what was what was going on in the event that you, uh, you know, are not familiar with the Italian language, as I, I am not. <laughs> Quote, Italian murdered. Belleville, New Jersey. In the Silver Lake section, there was a self-murder of Canio Bocciccio, who was found killed over a chair in his home at number 167 Franklin Street. The sad discovery was made by the dead man's son-in-law who hurried to call the police. The unfortunate man had a revolver ball in his chest. At the same time, Anafrio Sciortino of number 161 Franklin Street, a suspected perpetrator of the homicide, was taken to Mountainside Hospital with a ball in his leg. To the doctors who questioned him, he said he had been wounded by a black man who had attempted to rob him. After a policeman had been placed to guard Sciortino, a son of the dead man, Canillo Jr., arrived at the hospital. He was immediately arrested under accusation of carrying a treacherous weapon without permission and was handed over to the Gien Ridge police. End quote. My research trail would really go cold on uh, Sciortino until I found him within Santa Clara census records from the year 1940, which indicated that at the age of 49, he was living in a house together with his sister, who was the head of the household, and a few other family members. Uh, he had listed his occupation as a retail baker, and as I've noted in previous episodes, op occupations of alleged mobsters always make me laugh. Uh, but this establishes that Sciortino was definitely living in the area at the time. Now, here's the thing. Uh, because there is so little information around Sciortino, I am forced to do the thing that I don't normally do and source much of the information on Sciortino from Wikipedia. Sorry. Uh, for the sake of sort of rounding out the story. Uh, so take that for what you will and let me have it in the comments, though I think you'll find the rest of the episode interesting and as fact-oriented as I, as I can get, uh, as always. So it's alleged that around the time of this census in the early part of the 1940s, Sciortino would take control of the San Jose underworld, thus establishing the family officially and would become the city's first official Cosa Nostra boss. 
Now, I just want to say that the person I found noted by local papers to be reported as the head of the San Jose Mafia in 1935 was actually not Ski Ortino, but a man named Joe Bacari, who at the time was in trouble with a counterfeiting case and sentenced to a one-year term in county jail. However, after those references in 1935, there wasn't really any other significant reference to anyone named Joe Vicari. So again, those of you that are familiar with the history of San Jose, if you've got more color and light to shed on Joe Vicari and whether or not he came before Ski Ortino, let me know in the comments below. Send me an email. But for all intents and purposes for this episode, I'm going to stick with Ski Ortino as the first official San Jose LCN boss. Now, interestingly, there are some sources online that would suggest that Ski Ortino would name Joseph Cerrito, who will be the focus for the majority of this episode as his underboss, uh, but that was not anything that I could substantiate or validate. Uh, that said, I did see one report suggesting that they were close friends, so I, I guess it's plausible uh, that Cerrito would be in that position. For official purposes, one report indicated that Sciortino may have been a fruit buyer for a man named Antonio Bianco out of New York City in the past, but that by the 1940s was retired from the fruit buying business. Similar to other cities, the rackets that Anafrio allegedly pushed the family into were fairly traditional gambling, loan sharking, counterfeiting, shylocking, prostitution, and of course extortion. To uh, offer a little color around the type of man Sciortino allegedly was, it's rumored that he was a gambling addict who thought nothing of losing upwards of a million dollars per day. That number, especially in uh, those days, sounds high, but again, Wikipedia. Uh, he'd use his cut of the family's profits to continue to support his habit, diving the family deeper into the rackets to make up for his losses. Uh, and in January of 1959, according to the Los Angeles Mirror, Sciortino, who was noted as being from San Francisco originally, and I believe that that original uh, hit article from a couple of minutes ago was coming from San Francisco, was questioned by a federal grand jury investigating the local underworld and the international mafia. His name is noted along with other compatriots, including one, Joseph Joe Bananas Banano, who will crop up several times in this episode. Now, aside from solidifying Sciortino's ties within the underworld, this may actually validate my theory about San Jose originally being a satellite of the San Francisco organization. Allegedly, Anafrio would oversee uh, the family from its founding in the early 1940s until his death from a heart attack on September 10th, 1959, at the age of 68. Now, it's at this point that the family's eventual namesake, a man named Joseph Cerrito, would take over the crime family, and Cerrito would go on to lead the family for the next 19 years. To the public, Joseph Cerrito was primarily known as the owner of three major car dealerships in the San Jose area, two in San Jose and one in Los Gatos. He was an accomplished businessman who was respected in the local community. 
For many years, he would reside at 421 San Jose Avenue in Los Gatos, California, where he would own and operate a Lincoln Mercury dealership and the Elgato Edsel Automobile Sales Company. However, privately, he was also a longtime Cosa Nostra member who would ascend to the position of boss who had many contacts all over the country with records even showing that he'd contacted and met directly with New York boss Joe Profaci, who was reputed to be his distant relative. Uh, and you're going to see Profaci come up uh, often early on, as well as Profaci's underboss, Joe Magliocco. Cerrito uh, uh, was reputed to have contacted them often directly from his car dealership. There are records that, that show that. Joseph Xavier Cerrito, uh, to give a bio, was born in the mafia stronghold of Palermo, Sicily. His parents were Stefano and Paola Cerrito, and he had three brothers uh, and one sister, Mary, who would eventually marry the man who would later become a major Cerrito ally uh, later in, in, in his life. Uh, according to records I located, Cerrito would immigrate to the United States in the 1920s, like many Italians, settling first in the borough of Brooklyn in New York City. And I will say, if you do a quick Google search, you will not actually find that much information on Joseph Cerrito's background prior to landing out in San Jose, but don't worry, I've got your back. According to information Cerrito himself gave as part of an FBI interview after an event we'll discuss here in just a little bit, he himself provided even more context about his, his background and sort of his origin story. Quote, Subject was born 12511 at Villa Abate, Palermo, Italy. He was brought to the U.S. by his parents on 12120. He has derivative U.S. citizenship. Subject is married and with his wife and four children resides at 421 San Jose Avenue, Los Gatos, California. The subject owns and operates the Joseph Cerrito Lincoln Mercury Sales Agency and that property there too at 614 North Santa Cruz Avenue, Los Gatos and the San Jose Imports Company 1957 North San Carlos, San Jose. He reportedly graduated from high school in New York City and claims to have attended college in Alabama. His mother and two brothers and a sister reside in the San Jose area. The subject suffered a slight heart attack in 1953. He has no reported criminal record and is not known by local law enforcement. His indicated associates include several persons identified as top hoodlums in various parts of the U.S., these include such figures as Joe Perfacci, Joseph Magliocco of New York, Russell Buffalino of Philadelphia, Joe Savello of Dallas, Texas, and Frank D. Simone of Los Angeles, all of whom are top hoodlums and attended the Appalachian meeting. He is also reported to have been a friend of the exiled Sebastiani Nani, a convicted narcotics peddler, and others. He is not known to be engaged in any current criminal activities. Description set forth. End quote. I was also able to locate an FBI report that indicates agents based in the San Francisco field office interviewed a man named Joseph DiMaggio, not the baseball player, uh, but a, a man named Joseph DiMaggio, who would later become the general manager of Cerritos Automotive Dealership in Los Gatos, California. DiMaggio would provide a lot of context, additional context around Cerrito, and also knew a lot of the players in the San Jose Mafia. This interview would provide more background context on how Joe Cerrito eventually made it out to San Jose. 
Quote, Joseph DiMaggio, 16020 Winterbrook Road, Los Gatos, California, General Manager of the Joseph Cerrito Lincoln Mercury Sales, 614 North Santa Cruz Avenue, Los Gatos, was interviewed on January 2, 1959 by Special Agents C. Darwin Marone and Charles J. Prelznick. At that time, he stated that he had known Joseph Cerrito since approximately 1936. Cerrito's parents, he advised, lived about three doors down the street from him on 84th Street in New York, and he had known them very well. Cerrito's father, Stefano Cerrito, ran a neighborhood meat market, and Joe, after having tried various jobs, including photography and selling, worked in the butcher shop with his father. DiMaggio stated that he was practicing law in New York at the time and had been for 11 years. In 1938, DiMaggio advised he ran for U.S. Congress for his district in New York, but was defeated. He stated that he decided to leave New York the following year and discussed his plans with Cerrito's father, whom he induced to go along. DiMaggio stated that they went as far as Houston, Texas, where he and his wife stayed with relatives for about six months. Stefano Cerrito continued on to California. DiMaggio said that he and his family returned to New York for a short while and then went to California. The Cerrito family, he learned, had settled in Sunnyvale, California. Joe, who had recently been married, remained in New York. However, soon thereafter, Joe came to California and acquired a butcher shop at 9th and Reed Streets in San Jose. This, he recalled, was in 1941. He said that in spite of the meat shortages at the time, Joe Cerrito was able to make contact with the Sodality Meat Company, later known as the Denver Meat Company. As a result, Joe Cerrito made a lot of money in the butcher business. After the war, Cerrito became interested in the used car business and got into it by acquiring a used car lot of a former customer at North Market and Julian Streets in San Jose. DiMaggio stated that he, at the time, had been employed for five years by the California Title Insurance Company in San Jose. Cerrito induced him to go into the used car business on a partnership basis. According to DiMaggio, they operated very successfully during their first few years of business, and in 1946, Cerrito made three trips to New York to purchase used cars. They expanded their operations to a lot on South First Street, and after they lost the lease on their first lot, they located another on 401 Almaden Avenue. In 1949, when they were operating one lot, they dissolved their partnership. End quote. To provide more context as to why Cerrito went into the butcher business before the car business, apparently that was a trade he'd learned from his father, so it was what he knew growing up. Once in California, Cerrito and DiMaggio would continue their friendship, and as I alluded to, Cerrito, though he would try the butcher business, a manufacturing business, and the grocery business, would become fairly successful in the automotive business over the course of the next three decades. Uh, when the interview changed to insinuations of potential criminality, DiMaggio clammed up, claiming he had no knowledge of Cerrito's travels to New York in the infamous year of 1957, or of any other reasons to travel to New York, Detroit, and other cities save for visiting relatives, buying cars, or going to automotive conventions. DiMaggio would go on to state the following regarding Cerrito's early underworld connections. Quote, 
DiMaggio stated that when Cerrito was a youth in New York, he was friendly with a number of known hoodlums, but DiMaggio was positive that Joe Cerrito was not engaged in any illegal activities with them. End quote. In fact, Cerrito wouldn't actually crop up in the local papers until the early 1950s when you'd see his name uh, connected, funny enough, with Mr. DiMaggio in a groundbreaking ceremony for his dealership, as well as a number of other instances of various advertisements for his dealership and or related news reports, including a house fire, actually, that occurred at the Cerritos' home on 421 San Jose Avenue in February of 1953. Now, everyone was safe, but he did have a, a fire at his house. Some commentary I was able to find regarding Cerrito's reputation in the automotive business showed that maybe he might not have been as, as ethical as he wanted the public at the time to believe. Quote, Dun and Bradstreet in a report dated 11-27-57 states that Cerrito's financial statement on 12-31-56 showed current assets of $104,006, total assets of $231,899, and current liabilities $76,605, net worth of $111,115. A source in the automobile business advises that the volume of business conducted by Cerrito would not justify the salaries used in his personnel without showing a heavy loss. Source reports that Cerrito is a sharp trader given to unethical practices in his business appears to be held with suspicion and dislike in the trade. Those interviewed say he keeps to himself, is shrewd, drives a hard bargain, and is an outsider. Three sources advise that Cerrito travels a great deal by himself, usually, to New York. End quote. The report would go on to say the following in regards to Cerrito's taste in the finer things. Quote, Cerrito reportedly dresses in tailor-made clothes of the $150 to $200 variety, likes expensive things, and goes first class. He was reportedly the first owner in this area of a $10,000 Lincoln Continental manufactured by the Ford Company in 1956. End quote. Another report, uh, which shared the perspective of Mr. Curley, uh, with whom Cerrito was in talks to buy the dealership, notated Cerrito's terse approach to doing business. Quote, Mr. Curley stated that Redacted had often spoken about Cerrito to him. Redacted had considerable difficulty with Cerrito on deals, and Mr. Curley stated that he had heard Redacted refer to Cerrito as being wired in with the Mafia. This information from Redacted, according to Curley, was more in a spirit of jest. He doubted if Redacted had any definite information concerning this, but was probably referring to Cerrito because of his appearance and manners. Mr. Curley stated that Cerrito's methods of doing business were a little different from those engaged in by most automobile dealers who are given at times to sharp practices, but none are ever as extreme in their operation as is Cerrito. End quote. That said, uh, other reports would indicate that despite being sharp within the automotive business, Cerrito had no known unwholesome activities, uh, spent most of his time with older Italians, was a big fan of boxing, and generally speaking, a family man.
there was yet another report uh, I found, and this is the last one before I move on, which actually made me laugh, not so much at the particulars of his height, weight, or other physical characteristics, uh, but at his supposed pecul peculiarities, sorry, I can't pronounce it, uh, which read, quote, uses large words improperly, wears expensive dark tailor-made clothes, speaks fluent Italian, and wears a large diamond ring, end quote. So if the last few sources don't paint a picture, I really don't know what will. Uh, all of this is to, to really give you a picture of who Cerrito was by this time. And honestly, he sounds more like your typical suburban dad than a hardcore mobster. That being said, Cerrito was clearly a character who knew uh, and was still at the time in contact with some major Cosa Nostra figures from his days in New York as well as out on the West Coast. And like other mobsters, he was a fairly unscrupulous businessman who liked to dress well. These are certain characteristics that are in fitting with the mob, but by themselves don't necessarily mean that he was destined for the mob. So how did he join the mafia and then rise through the ranks? Uh, and all right, I'm, I'm good at being honest, and I'm going to be honest yet again. I'm really good at digging, uh, but I found absolutely nothing, again, indicating when Cerrito became a made member of Cosa Nostra, though it's clear by later reports that he definitely had his button. Uh, and since he had no criminal record, there really wasn't much to go on to tie him into the Mafia until 1957 and one of the most significant events in Mafia history. It's clear he had several ties to the mob from back home in New York, but for a long time he was 100% off the radar of law enforcement. In fact, I wouldn't actually find any records of him in FBI reports until 1958. That would all change in 1957, though. Uh, Cerrito would get on the radar for sure. Uh, and as I said, Cerrito wouldn't become nationally known as an LCN member until his attendance in 1957 of the infamous Appalachian Conference, which would officially out him as a member of the Mafia to the public. That said, this just goes to show that while the family was small, they, and Cerrito specifically, must have been respected just enough, not saying respected a lot, but just enough nationally to have gotten an invite. Not only that, but it just goes to show how the tentacles of the mob had spread throughout the country right under the public's noses, the latter of which I think is actually the more important theme. Ultimately, Cerrito's presence at this meeting would, for all intents and purposes, become his claim to fame in most Mafia circles, and you'll understand why later in the episode. To add some additional color to the Cerrito and Appalachian story, I have it on good authority and was able to loosely corroborate that the man who helped Cerrito make his arrangements to get to the meeting was none other than Russell Buffalino, who incidentally was in charge of making all of the arrangements for everyone attending the meeting. In fact, I have documentation indicating that Cerrito, along with James Jimmy the Hat Lanza, the boss of San Francisco, Joseph Savello, the boss of Dallas, Frank DeSimone, boss of Los Angeles, and Simone Scazzari, underboss of Los Angeles, stayed specifically in room 312 of the Hotel Casey in Scranton before traveling to the meeting, with the bill being footed by Buffalino, of course, who, uh, which of course he denied entirely when it was called into question during a deportation hearing. According to records, Cerrito had traveled from San Francisco to New York and then on to Appalachian with the San Francisco boss James Lanza. 
Based on what I observed in my research, there appeared to be fairly close ties between San Jose and, and the San Francisco family, specifically uh, likely due to proximity. San Jose was also tied into the Los Angeles family and even Colorado with the Small Doan Organization and Pueblo LCN family, not to mention uh, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and many connections back to New York. Cerrito would testify in front of authorities in August of 1958 and January 1959, and then again for a grand jury in March of, uh, and June of 1959 to answer questions about his presence at the Appalachian Summit, as well as some questionable travel funds he'd used to make the trip to New York. Uh, and they were really, uh, you know, with Cerrito trying to follow the money, so to speak. According to FBI reports, Cerrito profanely referring to his being interviewed concerning his activities and asked uh, to be left alone to pursue his business of selling automobiles despite being granted immunity from prosecution. So it sounds like they were trying to get him to rat. Uh, at the time of his 1958 interview, it was uh, the observation of agents that he was not antagonistic or belligerent during the interview, but he was evasive and not cooperative. He appeared to be willing to answer any questions concerning his background and associates, but would refuse to answer any questions which would reflect upon his associates or relationships with any of the Sicilian hoodlum elements. In reply to questions relating to the existence of a mafia, Cerrito laughed and labeled as fantastic and fictional the existence of such an organization. Cerrito was questioned by the agents as to whether he had any information relating to the purpose of the meeting, and of course he denied that he had any information relative to the meeting or even any opinion as to its possible purpose. Privately and at a later date, informants would suggest that Cerrito had been known to remark that not only did he attend Appalachian, but that he escaped apprehension by jumping a fence and hiding in the weeds, eventually returning to his home by way of New Orleans, Louisiana. So all in all, in that instance, facing that heat, he showed himself to be a stand-up guy, pretty much like all of the other attendees. Uh, he would never be arrested or officially charged with a crime related to Appalachian. At the same time the Appalachian blowback was happening, Cerrito's dealership, Joseph Cerrito Lincoln Mercury, in around June of 1958, was burglarized for what the papers reported a considerable sum of money. Uh, now, this is going to start a theme. I would find absolutely nothing that spoke to this robbery in FBI reports, and to my knowledge, there was no reprisal following the burglary. Uh, given what I know now and what I'm about to share with you, this actually makes sense. However, if this had happened in another city with another important member of an LCN family, you can bet revenge would have been served swiftly and heads would have been on spikes, heads on spikes, so to speak. Uh, but that did not seem to happen here. Now, during the latter period of time when he was still facing the scrutiny from Appalachian, Cerrito would allegedly ascend to the position of boss in 1959 after the death of his predecessor, Anafrio Sciortino. This would make him 48 at the time of his appointment, thus making him a relatively young Don uh, within LCN. Now, similar to his making date, I really couldn't find uh, any documentation around his rise through the Mafia ranks, as I said. 
I can't say that the story of him being an underboss, or at least a capo, is true, but the official documentation has him becoming boss right around this time period. So it's clear that he, uh, A, had his button, and B, was in a position prominent enough within the family to be made boss. The only other plausible alternative for Cerrito's ascension uh, to boss would be that there was simply nobody else qualified to do the job at the time. Um, that's saying a lot, and that's uh, it's not. That's saying that there was nobody uh, respected or as respected, or maybe Cerrito was the best of a bad bunch. Um, you know, I, I don't really know, uh, but I'll let I'll let you make that determination for yourself once you learn more about Cerrito's reign as boss. After becoming the boss, the documentation I was able to locate, which was from the mid-1970s by this point, so well into Cerrito's reign, but tended to, to indicate that Cerrito would name a man named Charles Carbone his underboss, and Carbone would stay in place until Carbone's death in 1967. The report also stated that Cerrito had not one, but two men acting as consigliere, uh, Filippo Filmarici, who interestingly enough was of all things a notary public in and uh, for the county of Santa Clara. So you had your notary public in the mafia. So be careful what you're trying to get notarized. And the other consigliere was Stefano Steve Zicoli. And uh, Cerrito's top capo, dubbed a capo di Decina in the report, was a man named Emmanuel Manifilia, who was in fact Cerrito's brother-in-law, uh, with Cerrito actually serving his best man in Filia's wedding to Cerrito's sister, Mary. There are also records showing Angelo Marino and Charles Carbone as capos at various times. We know that eventually Charles Carbone was the underboss, but also Angelo Marino as a capo. So uh, clearly this setup uh, by Cerrito was relatively unorthodox on his part uh, and with respect to how he aligned his, admin his administration. Eventually, Manny Filia would be promoted to the position of underboss uh, in 1967 after the death of Carbone. And Filia would be a really, uh, not only just a brother-in-law, but a confidant and a really important uh, cog in the wheel of the Cerrito family. Very respected uh, guy within the family and Cerrito's sort of right-hand man. During the early part of 1961, Cerrito would be observed meeting with some of his family's top men, including Steve Zicoli, Angelo Marino, Dominic Anzalone, and Charles Carbone at various locations around San Jose. It was noted at the time that the informant, dubbed T1, was observed meeting with these in individuals all of whom were uh, or would become well-known members of the San Jose LCN family. Uh, family even by this time had a lot of informants as you're about to see. Now, as I mentioned, Cerrito was not on the authorities' radar until after Appalachian, but became a figure of much curiosity from law enforcement after he became boss, which I guess was sort of unavoidable at this point in time, given what was going on with law enforcement around the country. Now, by this point, as you'll see, the family already had several informants, as I just noted, providing information to the government. Um, I think, if I'm going to guess, probably some informants in high-ranking positions. I don't want to name names or say who, but just the impression I got was that the informants were well-placed. Now, by the early part of 1962, informants out of San Francisco had noted that Cerrito was the clear 
leader in San Jose's underworld, saying the following about his ascension. Quote, SFT 30 on January 25th, 1962, advised that Joseph Cerrito is the head of the Italian Sicilian organization at San Jose, California. Cerrito is the Don or head of two groups at San Jose and of a group in Modesto, California. He originally was a capo in San Jose. Cerrito has issued instructions that members of his two groups are under his direct supervision and that they are to take orders directly from him. Members of the organization are to clear any plans for business ventures, jobs, or trips with him. Cerrito reportedly is aware of the fact that this Italian-Sicilian organization began many years ago in Sicily, and it arose out of oppression of peasants by rich landowners, whereupon the peasants bound themselves together for mutual protection. Meetings of the organization are held at irregular intervals and are called by Cerrito or one of his capos. Some of the meetings have been held in the home of Cerrito at Los Gatos and at Cerrito's restaurant, No Known Relation, in Monterey, California. Some of the meetings have involved as many as 75 individuals. Some of the meetings also have been held at Paolo's restaurant in San Jose, California, and it is believed that Cerrito may be one of the individuals who afforded financial backing to the restaurant. Such a meeting was held at Paolo's restaurant in September 1961, and Cerrito made opening remarks and directed the meeting. At all of the dinners sponsored by the organization, the food is furnished by Cerrito or one of the leaders of the group. Restaurant bills are paid by means of a diner's club card presented by Cerrito or one of the leaders. End quote. So, as you can clearly see, during his tenure as boss, he was reputed to have maintained a relatively tight grip over his family, and things would not always be done in the traditional way of most LCN families. Not only that, but you're going to see, like I said, a trend with the Cerritos that really stands out. Not only were they very conservative with their approach to crime, they may have been the most risk-averse LCN family in the entire country. And I think that aversion to taking risks will, would end up having a two-part effect. One, they would, would largely stay out of jail for the most part. Most of their members didn't have too much trouble with long prison stays during Cerrito's reign. And two, the lack of obvious aggression would lead to a general lack of respect. Now, as boss, Cerrito would go on to dictate that his family members avoid taking part in petty street crimes and focus on hiding their illegitimate income in legitimate business ventures, if not just straight up not doing anything illegitimate and being just straight up legitimate. They were instructed directly by Cerrito to keep their contacts to a minimum, which I think was smart, while the FBI and other federal agencies has their organization under close scrutiny. And you see this in the modern mafia quite a bit. In fact, information gained by federal authorities would suggest that under Cerrito's reign, the family kept most criminal activity under the radar in favor of legitimate activities, as I just said. And you're about to see the organization under Cerrito maybe wasn't as fearsome, not maybe, it definitely wasn't as fearsome as some other LCN organizations around the country at the time, though in the end, their strategy may have ultimately been wiser, despite not being as, as glamorous and vicious. In fact, FBI reports would notate that the family exhibited little enthusiasm for illegal activities. That's a direct quote. Uh, Though they should be closely monitored to ensure illegal operations were immediately known. 
so this tells me that the FBI had nothing <laughs> despite having all of these informants. Now, an informant would tell the FBI that after the family inducted him, again, a well-placed member, as a member behind a cheese factory, likely the California Cheese Company in San Jose, he was told he would have to pay $5 a month into the organization, though that requirement would uh, you know, later be dropped. The family also informed him that he might someday be called on to commit a crime, but that he could never commit a crime without the consent of the organization. However, they told him that if he was ordered to commit a crime, he was to try to do good work. Again, another direct quote, try to do good work. Now, to the Cerrito family's credit, due to their focus on legitimate activities, the feds would have a really challenging time catching them doing anything illegal. Uh, this was fairly consistent in my research, but there was one incident that caught my attention, and it didn't reflect well on the family's ability to follow through with what was probably a necessary level of lethal accountability that they needed to execute on their part, no pun intended. Quote, the only known illegal action of the San Jose group which has been planned and as yet has not been carried out was an attempt to collect a large sum of money from a prominent and wealthy casino operator in Reno, Nevada, on the grounds that this man had made a contract with a member of the San Jose group for a killing and later welched on the contract. This casino operator called off the killing and refused to pay, whereupon Cerrito was told of the situation after attempts to collect in 1956 were unsuccessful. Cerrito thereafter directed the efforts of the group to collect and called a meeting in this connection in July 1961 at a place he owned in the Santa Cruz Mountains. In January 1962, Cerrito issued instructions to kill the casino operator, but to date, these instructions have not been carried out. Cerrito has expressed concern over the fact that the San Jose group is the laughingstock in other groups throughout the country for its failure to collect or to take action in this matter, and has expressed concern that some other group might move in and make the collection on its own. End quote. Now, I think Cerrito may have been ahead of the curve and quite astute with respect to making the family legitimize itself. However, as you'll see, I think there is another side to the San Jose family. And the more I found, the more I got the sense that the family in Cerrito wasn't greatly feared or respected by the people it was dealing with, its members and other LCN families. Uh, and that's not just me speculating. There are reports saying that the family lost prestige as a result of the lack of ability to handle this issue in particular. In that life, reputation is everything. And unfortunately for the Cerritos, there would be more reports along these lines that would further illustrate the fundamental lack of respect and lack of ferocity that the San Jose family would have during the Joe Cerrito era. Now, this isn't to say that the lack of violence was a failure of Cerrito to order such things. In fact, I did find several instances of Cerrito ordering someone to be beaten or even more. Quote, on June 28, 1962, SFT-12 advised that on June 27, 1962, he determined that Joseph Cerrito had asked Miseraca, Camerata, and Costanza to take care of some unidentified individual in the San Francisco area who had gotten completely out of line. 
Cerrito directed that the individual be given a beating he wouldn't forget and be given to understand why he was being worked over. Cerrito noted that even if the individual died, it would be no great loss to the organization. End quote. So clearly the man had no issue ordering violence. The problem tended to be, no pun intended, the execution of the orders. Now, according to reports, the Reno issue and the San Francisco beating were in fact connected. As part of a trade of sorts, New York would take over collection of the money from the Reno casino operator, who turned out to be a man named Harold Smith Jr., and San Jose would take care of the beating of the individual in San Francisco. After this, Cerrito was said to have been no longer interested in the Reno issue, though members of the mob on the East Coast were very unhappy that the job had not been accomplished, as you might imagine. And you would think that uh, that would have been the end of it, but unfortunately it wasn't. According to another FBI report dated June 29th of 1962, the issue may have been an internal dispute within the family involving future boss and at the time a capo, Angelo Marino. The report reads, quote, on June 29, 1962, SFT-1 advised that he felt that Marino of the California Cheese Company might possibly be the target for the beating proposed by Cerrito as described above. He said he believed this for the reason that Cerrito has displayed Marino's big shot attitude and aggressive manner in entertaining visiting hoodlums in this area, thus overshadowing Cerrito. Cerrito also feels that Marino has usurped some of his status as head of the organization in this area. Informant noted that Marino had better get in line or his head would look like a piece of mozzarella cheese. Informant also noted that Marino was having an indiscreet love affair, which was a matter discussed with Cerrito and his associates. He pointed out further that Marino's wife, the former Precious Maggio, is aware of Angelo's infidelity, and she is the daughter of the late Mike Maggio, former powerful hoodlum figure in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He noted that perhaps Marino's wife would have connections in Philadelphia, which could arrange to have Marino brought into line. End quote. Though other reports would indicate that Cerrito and Marino had a good relationship, I'm going to, to go out on a limb and suggest that I don't think any of that speaks highly of the San Jose family. That's not even going out of, on a limb. I don't think it speaks highly. And the affair, uh, which we'll get into in the next episode, uh, where we do a part two, ruffled many feathers across multiple LCN families. Now, if you aren't really getting the picture of who this family seemed to be, here's another example of the, the, the so-called good work at play when Cerrito ordered someone else to be clipped, an incident which honestly reminded me to go back to Hollywood, quite a bit of the Feech LaManna storyline in The Sopranos. Uh, this story comes from an informant who was placed well enough to have been meeting with none other than Santo Traficante, who had made a trip to San Jose in around 1963 or 1964. Quote, informant told Santo that around 1963 or 1964, Angelo came to contact the informant and told him that he had received an execution contract and sought advice. The informant advised that Angelo wanted him to help, but he told Angelo he was still on parole and could have nothing to do with it. He told Angelo to take a couple of trusted soldiers and carry out the contract. 
Sometime later, he heard that the intended victim was picked up by Immigration and Naturalization Service, INC, for deportation, and he always suspected Angelo, instead of killing the intended victim, made an anonymous call to have him picked up rather than kill him. He stated that from questioning Angelo at the time, he learned Angelo had even talked to the intended victim while the contract was in force, and he also learned the contract had been given Angelo by the LCN San Jose boss, Joe Cerrito, end quote. And let me tell you, uh, and we'll get into this next episode, Tropicante did not have good things to say about Angelo Marino. Uh, from what I read, it was it was pretty bad. And not only that, and I think you're going to continue to see the lack of respect trend I've alluded to continue to play itself out. Failure to carry out a boss's orders on such an assignment and many other families would mean you'd summarily be whacked yourself, uh, right? You don't execute the contract, you get a contract put on your head. But in the Cerrito family, while I don't want to say it was soft, so to speak, because it still was the mafia, the same level of internal accountability and deadly consequences just didn't seem to be honored or, or taken nearly as seriously as in other families. And as you get uh, a few years into the 1960s, the Cerrito family, if you couldn't tell, would begin to have trouble with informants. And the FBI would attempt to capitalize by pulling in various family members and associates and subjecting them to interviews, tickling the wire. Uh, the group that was pulled in included Sal Costanzo, Pete Miseraca, who was in fact the brother of John Miseraca of the Profaci family, and the, the family had a lot of issues with Pete, Alex uh, Camerata, who was in fact the son-in-law of Pete's brother, John Miseraca, Angelo Marino, and potentially several more, all pulled in for, for interviews uh, during this time period. This development uh, was, as you might expect, fairly upsetting to Joe Cerrito. Uh, first, and I agree with this criticism from the mobster's perspective, he was critical because all of those members allowed themselves to be interviewed without their lawyer present, uh, not wise. Second, very few of them, save for Marino, had advised him that they'd been interviewed and even Joe Bonanno was reputed to have been watching these developments uh, with interest. In other LCN families, when this type of thing happens, people tend to get whacked. But again, for whatever reason, nothing seems to have happened in this family, despite making some family members clearly very nervous. The goal, of course, uh, of these interviews was to get even more members to flip. But as I said, the FBI didn't seem to have an issue with getting informants in San Jose, just with catching uh, the, the family members doing anything illegal. Now, in 1963, you also had, at the time, the Valachi hearings, and though he wasn't the main focus, Joe Cerrito's face would be one of just 22 other men on the FBI intelligence chart illustrating national mafia leaders. As someone who wanted to keep a low profile and to keep up the thin veneer of being just a mild-mannered car salesman, this is, of course, just not the type of publicity that Cerrito would want to court. Fast forwarding to July 14th, 1964, Cerrito's daughter Paula was married and afterwards, uh, much like you see in, in The Godfather, although here probably to a lesser extent, but still a massive reception was thrown at the St. Clair Hotel, uh, now the Westin, in downtown San Jose. As you'd expect, most of the crime family attended, including Cerrito's underboss, Emmanuel Manifilia, 
additionally, uh, while there wasn't huge attendance uh, from LCN figures outside of San Jose, the wedding was attended by Salvatore Perfacci, son of the late New York boss Joe Perfacci, and later uh, an important figure in New York's Colombo family in his own right. Uh, that said, Profaci was apparently the only out-of-town LCN guest, likely due to the fact that he owned property just east of San Jose and Modesto. As you might expect, the large and flashy wedding reception drew increased attention from law enforcement. And it exposed a bit of hypocrisy on Cerrito's part and even drew criticism from LCN figures, especially family member Alex Camerata, who shared his sent sentiments to an FBI informant uh, and was... The, these sentiments were recorded in an FBI report that were very critical of Cerrito for inviting his entire LCN family to the wedding when he himself has ex expressly recommended that the family not be seen together at funerals, weddings, and social functions. Also in 1964, with the FBI now watching his every move, Cerrito took a vacation to Europe that was notable enough even to be reported in the local papers. Now, I don't know how... How many people go on vacations and have it be reported in, in the papers, unless you're somebody famous, but apparently Cerrito fit the bill, so his vacation showed up in, in the papers. Uh, and during the trip, he was spotted actually vacationing, not just in Europe, but in Palermo with his wife, and allegedly used the occasion to meet a man named Frank Garofalo at a hotel in his hometown of Palermo, Sicily. Of course, the, the meeting is significant as Garofalo wasn't just a nobody. He was a former administration member of the Bonanos under family namesake Joe Bonanno, who the Cerritos were also uh, pretty close to. And the man authorities actually believe helped to set up the hit of famed newspaper editor Carlo Tresca back in the 40s. Many would speculate that the pair were discussing the war within the Bonanno family, dubbed the Bananas War, which was raging in New York City at the time. And what I find just generally funny here about the entire situation is that the local media uh, in San Jose and in, in, in the area surrounding San Jose, even with Cerritos' presence at Appalachian being reported, the local media, who is in other cities, usually right on top of this stuff, uh, almost surprisingly on top of this stuff, seem to have zero clue about Cerrito's status within the mafia, though the FBI was all over him, uh, unless, unless the local media maybe just kept their knowledge under wraps out of fear, uh, which perhaps could be true, uh, but they certainly weren't doing that in other cities. Cerrito, uh, at this time, especially if you look back through old newspapers, was still very present and very much advertising his dealerships all over the local papers with no issues or disruptions, and it was actually quite rare for me to find anything but old dealership ads in my research until you got into about the mid-1960s. On August 2nd, 1965, Italian authorities in Palermo, Sicily would conduct a series of pre-dawn raids ending in the arrest of nine men, with a total of 14 warrants issued, uh, who law enforcement suspected of having links with the Sicilian and American Cosa Nostra. Cerrito was actually one of the 14 men sought by authorities, though he wouldn't actually be arrested. A few of those arrested were Giuseppe Genco Russo, reported as the long-reputed head of the Mafia in Sicily, 
Frank Three Fingers Coppola, who had been connected with the Detroit LCN before being deported from the United States back to Italy in the 1940s, and of course Frank Garofalo, who we just mentioned. Cerrito, as you might expect, would deny any ties to the Mafia, saying that it must just be a case of mistaken identity, but it certainly gives my salesmen something to talk about. Uh, Cerrito would later be cleared cleared of any official ties to the Italian Mafia, but would remain under su surveillance by U.S. authorities for the remainder of his life. Anyhow, uh, the Cerrito family, after, after Joe's vacation, uh, would continue to cut their path forward in the mid-1960s, largely avoiding major prosecutions as a family, even while being under near-constant surveillance by the authorities. There were still issues in the family with the, uh, a general lack of respect being shown to superiors, but things were somehow still running. However, by the summer of 1967, the heat brought down by the FBI was so bad that Cerrito made the decision in July 1967 to temporarily suspend all meetings between San Jose LCN members, advising family members that for a time they were on their own. Uh, and this is, in my uh, experience, pretty unprecedented. Now, it maybe may happen today, but this was pretty unprecedented back then in what was supposed to be the golden era of the mafia. Uh, and honestly, this is probably uh, probably was an astute move. And like I just said, something you would see more often in today's mafia than in the mob during its heyday in the 1960s. And then in a reversal, uh, and not to bring up the subject of weddings again, it should be noted that in December of 1967, Cerrito again made it clear that he desired all San Jose LCN members to be, to be present at the wedding of the daughter of family member Pete Miseraca. Uh So I get, <laughs> I get that weddings are a big thing in any culture, but this was just another edict that sort of flew in the face of Cerrito's recommendation that the family not be seen together at funerals, weddings, weddings, and social functions. So either he decided to, to loosen his restriction from earlier in the summer, or he was just somewhat of a hypocrite. And quite honestly, I, I, I can't decide which. <laughs> Another part of the wedding that came out seemed to indicate that one of his soldiers, again, the same Alex Camerata that had criticized him in 1964 during his daughter's wedding, was beefing with Pete Miseraca. According to the report, Capo de Decina, Emmanuel Manny Filio said to an informant that Cerrito left specific instructions that Sal Costanza was to make certain that Alex Camerata attended the wedding by making arrangements to travel to the church together. Uh, and not that, uh, you know, we need to dive at so deep into travel arrangements for, for going to, to a wedding, but, but this is kind of where we are with this family. Uh, Cerrito apparently felt that if Alex went to this wedding, it would be a step in the right direction towards ending his apparent feud with Pete Miseraca. Apparently, the issues with Miseraca were so deep-seated by this point that there would be a murder plot against him allegedly okayed by Cerrito, though it didn't actually end up happening. So again, some ongoing potential murderous inner family drama and another excuse for the FBI to surveil members of the family. Now, I know what you'll say. These events, uh, weddings, uh, were more celebrated and almost required within most other families. And I agree that it's true. However, if you're going to say that the family shouldn't be seen together and then require the family to attend these events, it's a bit hypocritical. And that's really just all I'm going to point out there. It's hypocritical. 
to to you know say one thing but then have everybody have to do another then in the fall of 1967 a series of magazine articles would put the family squarely in the spotlight and would lead them down a path that would shine a light on them nationally and also continue to increase the sense of relative tension and dysfunction that appeared to have been happening within the family, with many pointing the fingers directly at Cerrito himself. The articles in question were a feature on the National Mafia by Life magazine on September 1st and September 8th of 1967, in which Cerrito would be featured as the Mafia boss of San Jose, and in which other LCN bosses would also be featured prominently. As you might expect, the article greatly angered Cerrito, so much so that he actually sued the magazine in a case entitled Joseph Cerrito vs. Time, Inc. Life Magazine at Al for $7 million, $2 million in compensatory and $5 million in punitive damages, accusing the publisher of libel and saying the articles were false and malicious. He was represented in the suit by Jack Wasserman, who was most notably chief counsel for another infamous mob figure, Carlos Marcello, the boss of New Orleans. Now, in the end, the lawsuit didn't end up really having any teeth and was eventually thrown out of court with the judge stating that Cerrito's case was not persuasive, that life's action in printing the statement concerning the plaintiff was malicious and was made with reckless disregard of the truth. Now, according to reports I found, while I don't think anyone blamed him for the initial publicity of the Life article, several family members who were in fact informants were upset at Cerrito for the increased heat his lawsuit brought upon the family. One such report from an informant let loose on Cerrito. Quote, the following information is placed on the administrative pages of this report as it refers to the statements made by TE informants in regard to their reaction to the March 15th issue of Life magazine regarding Joseph Cerrito and LCN members in this area. On March 20th, 1968, SF Redacted CTE was contacted at his home in Richmond, California by SA's Rudolph H. Mancini and Richard Vitamanti, at which time he related that he had read the article and said, it puts me right in the middle. Informant advised that since the article names him Redacted as the one who allegedly redacted the matter with Redacted, Joe Cerrito and his flunkies will be looking for a patsy and the sole blame for bringing the bad publicity to the San Jose family will be placed on his shoulders. Informant said that Cerrito will not take into account that he started the whole mess with his libel suit against Life magazine. Informant advised that in addition, he did not tell Cerrito to go to Italy and get fouled up as he did. End quote. I actually had another report, though, which suggested something interesting about the potential intended legal consequences of the lawsuit. Quote, on December 11th, SF Redacted-C-TE in contact with Alex Camerata, San Jose LCN member who is son-in-law of New York Capodicina, John Miseraca. Informant told Camerata that he was recently approached by FBI agents in question concerning his frequent contacts with San Jose LCN members, and Camerata stated that FBI should be sued just as Joe Cerrito is suing Life magazine. 
Informant encouraged further discussion regarding Cerrito's libel suit, and Camerata stated that a suit of this nature is old mafia trick used during Prohibition days to force publishers and law enforcement agencies into courtroom where they could be compelled to reveal identities of their informants. Camerata stated that Joe Cerrito did not make the decision to file this libel suit on his own volition, but was ordered to do so by his superiors, end quote. So it was about getting informants out in the open. And of course, the latter part of the report uh, referenced the idea didn't actually come from Cerrito himself. I actually found multiple sources that suggested Cerrito was being instructed directly by none other than Stefano Magadino to file the libel suit, which was to be supported by others in the National Commission as a test case. Uh, so a test case, right? Uh, that's an interesting twist that I didn't expect. The report read, quote, on December 8, 1968, SFT3 advised that he contacted Sal Toronto, San Francisco LCN member on December 7, 1967, to determine through Dominic Anzalone and any other sources the background concerning the reasons for initiation of instant libel suit. Toronto advised informant that during a recent contact with Anzalone, San Jose LCN member and associate of Joe Cerrito, Anzalone stated that Cerrito received instructions to file a libel suit directly from Steve Magadino, LCN commission member, Buffalo, New York. Anzalone informed Toronto that no formal commission meeting was held which brought about the decision to file this libel suit. According to Anzalone, commission members were individually contacted and it was agreed that a libel suit should be filed against Life magazine as a test case and that Cerrito, being a prominent businessman with little, if any, derogatory background, would be the logical person to file such a suit. Arrangements were made for contact between Cerrito and Magadino at prearranged telephone pay stations, at which time Cerrito was informed of the ruling of the commission. Toronto also contacted Dominic Ferrito, San Jose LCN member and uncle of Joe Cerrito, who advised Toronto that the commission issued direct instructions to Cerrito to file a libel suit against Life magazine. Ferrito had no specific information as to how the decision was made or how instructions were received by Cerrito. SFT3 in Sal Toronto personally contacted Manny Filia, Capodicina, San Jose LCN, who is also brother-in-law of Joe Cerrito. Filia also informed that the libel suit filed against Life magazine by Joe Cerrito was done on instructions by the commission. Filia did not volunteer specifically how the decision was brought about or how direct instructions were issued to Cerrito. Filia additionally advised that should Cerrito's suit against Life magazine be successful, libel suits will be filed by other members named in the magazine articles. End quote. So the plot with respect to the Life magazine article thickens, uh, and it appears that the National Cosa Nostra felt Cerrito was a safe way to test the legal response to such a suit, which could have significantly opened the floodgates for the mafia to push back against law enforcement and the media had it passed. But alas, it did not pass. The other parts I found interesting were, number one, uh, seeing how the commission was so active in setting policy on a national level, even all the way in San Jose, and seeing how interconnected and highly communicative all of the families actually were behind the scenes. 
Part number two is not only was it interesting to see the communication and how it stretched nationally, but uh, seeing that a family as small as the Cerritos, uh, you could really see that it had the effect of everybody really knowing everyone else's business. Now, in larger families, sure, there's gossip, but the people that really knew what the boss was thinking were few and far between. That's a pretty small group. Whereas within this family and likely other smaller families across the country, it seemed like they knew every detail pretty quickly. They sounded like they knew what Cerrito was thinking before Cerrito himself knew what he was thinking. And then uh, the last part is just seeing how subservient Cerrito was on the national level. Though he was the boss of his family, it was very clear that his clout nationally was, was limited. For what it's worth, there were reports indicating that Cerrito's friend and San Francisco boss James Lanza was supportive of the libel suit. So take that for what you will. So essentially, that article would push the organization further underground than they already were to avoid scrutiny. Also in 1968, there was a, a very, very bizarre incident between Cerrito and one of his soldiers, who was in fact his uncle, Dominic Ferrito, that sounds a bit like it should have been a part of a, a more like a Mel Brooks movie rather than a real-life mafia occurrence. And, and when I tell you about it, you're either going to be in shock from laughter or in shock from just disbelief. Pretty crazy, crazy story. Quote, SCT-2 advised on April 1st, 1968, that a recent conversation with Salvatore Toronto, San Francisco family, revealed that Dominic Ferrito had been visited by Joseph Cerrito, boss of the San Jose family at Los Banos, California. Toronto told informant that Cerrito had informed Ferrito that he was removing him from the San Jose family and as a result, a violent argument ensued, resulting in Ferrito chasing Cerrito with a knife around Ferrito's home. On April 19, 1968, SCT-2 had determined the above incident resulted from a personal argument involving the then-upcoming marriage of Cerrito's son. Informants stated no action had been taken by Cerrito regarding Ferrito's membership and that Ferrito continues to be a member of the San Jose LCN family. End quote. Now, some quick clarification that I found in another report was that the dispute had to do with Ferrito's son, Steve, not Cerrito's son. But alas, <laughs> that over-the-top bizarre incident is a lot to unpack, but I'm going to try. Now, first, the fact that this incident occurred and that other families knew about it was more likely a major source of embarrassment for Cerrito and went to show maybe a growing, not just maybe a growing lack of respect, a lack of respect that he had uh, with even his own men. Second, a soldier not only arguing uh, with, but attacking the boss of a family. In other cities, that man would have been killed probably on the spot. But this just goes to show how things were uh, really handled differently and with a bit of white glove <laughs> rather than the hammer uh, in some other areas of the, the country versus San Jose. The lack of retribution or action, even if it was just to shelve Ferrito, was somewhat shocking. And not only that, this this guy was was Cerrito's uncle, right? So his uncle is literally chasing him around a kitchen with a damn knife. <laughs> uh, based on that, what incentive do others have then to follow the rules, stay in line, uh, and continue to support Cerrito? What 
what's the incentive? If a soldier can chase him around with a knife, what's the incentive to have this guy as your boss? And again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I just find this report in comparison to what I've seen with other families, it's almost unbelievable. But I digress. By the summer of 1968, the FBI would obtain evidence that showed that the San Jose family would regularly use a ranch of a made man named Angelo Giamono uh, as a meeting place between San Jose LCN family members or uh, when Eastern LCN family members like, uh, like Miseraca traveled to the West Coast. However, after the article came out in Life magazine, meetings at the ranch ceased due to the increased pressure and scrutiny brought forward by the FBI and the San Jose family. In 1969, to kind of keep up the, the chronological timeline of events, the tension within the family would continue as an affidavit would circulate within the family and family members would be noted as on the fence as to whether they should sign it or not due to the potential legal ramifications. The situation, which was a, more than a little convoluted, involved Alex Camerata, the com complainer <laughs> uh, from, from weddings, uh, John Adrizzoni, the nephew of Joe Cerrito, who was also having tax issues at the time, Manny Filia, and John Miseraca. And apparently Adrizzoni had been photographed coming out of a meeting at the Miseraca residence, and multiple affidavits had been circulated with the group unsure of whether or not they should sign them. The group, specifically Camerata, wanted to get in touch with Cerrito so that he could advise what they should do, as, as is a boss's right. Uh, but Cerrito at the time was not agreeing to contact with any LCN members. So again, an example of... Uh, probably poor leadership and going very far underground with his members scratching their heads as, as to what to do. The FBI believed that this was Cerrito's uh, way of testing who was loyal to him and who was not, while an informant believed that Cerrito was, was in, in fact using that informant. I believe that circulating the, the affidavit was yet another attempt by the FBI to tickle the wire, as they say, in order to put pressure on members of the family to get them to break Omerta and testify against Cerrito. And of course, still bouncing around the legal system by 1969, as we noted, highly unsuccessful was the libel suit of Life magazine, which apparently had been refiled seeking an additional $7 million, a fact which by this point uh, in time had made Cerrito absolutely sick uh, in terms of his level of disgust. Informants would relate the following about a conversation had with Cerrito's underboss, Manny Filia. Quote, On 3-12-69, informant contacted Manny Filia, underboss, San Jose LCN family, during which time they discussed the recent libel suit filed 3-5-69, U.S. District Court, San Francisco, by Joe Cerrito, LCN boss of the San Jose family, against Life magazine for an additional $7 million. Informant commented to Filia that Pete Miseraca was probably fuming because the newspapers, in referring to the suit, again made reference to the Harold Smith matter, to which Manny replied, If you think Pete is unhappy, you should see Joe Cerrito. He's really sick. Informant said to Manny, what do you mean? Didn't he file the new suit? And Manny replied, yeah, but he didn't want to. He's sick of the whole thing. He wanted to leave sleeping dogs lie. He doesn't want the money. All he wanted was a retraction. Felia then related that Cerrito and his wife during the past week were guests at his home for a birthday party. 
Manny said, you should have seen that guy. He's so depressed and sick that he couldn't even eat a piece of cake. Felia commented that Cerrito's wife and kid are mad at Joe for all of the trouble, particularly the adverse publicity and the loss of his dealership. The informant told Felia that he could not understand why Cerrito filed a new libel suit if he wanted to forget the matter. Manny concluded the discussion by saying, you don't understand, you don't understand. Informant added that he did not press Felia further for discussion on the matter. However, it was his impression that someone convinced Cerrito to file the most recent libel action against Life magazine against his wishes. End quote. So, <laughs> as far as I can tell, the second suit, which also would eventually be thrown out and amount to nothing, was kind of ruining Cerrito's life. Uh, by that point, the pressure and publicity of the suit had led him to sell what I believe was his pride and joy, his Lincoln Mercury dealership. And to be honest, the thing I've been wondering this entire time was if Cerrito regretted, even as becoming the boss, being in the mafia. As far as I can tell, though he was a boss, it wasn't as if he was immensely wealthy as many other bosses were around the country. While he had certainly done a great job as far as keeping the family from taking major hits from a law enforcement perspective, even despite the heavy scrutiny caused by the lawsuit and from the FBI, along with the bevy of informants, he didn't seem to act like a normal mafia boss might, nor did he seem to have the respect from his peers that you'd expect for someone keeping the family out of the legal fire and who was also not significantly violent. Which brings me to the question I asked at the top of the episode. If the family wasn't going to commit crime and couldn't and wouldn't commit murders, why even be a part of Cosa Nostra? What's the point? It's like, like I said, being a pirate, but not seeking treasure or swashbuckling or flying the skull and crossbones. Uh, and I'm not saying that that's the right approach, right? But if you're, if you're going to be in the mafia, well, that comes with certain things that you have to do. So if you're not willing to take those risks, why be in the mafia? Uh, and like I said, they were, the Cerritos, the most risk-averse crime family I've investigated to the point where I'm 100% unclear, actually, on what crimes they may have been regularly engaged in since they weren't operating as openly as a traditional LCN family. And the FBI, despite being all over them, had similar difficulty. By this point, there was at least one informant who would say in an FBI report that the San Jose and San Francisco LCN families most likely didn't have the stomach to harm him, but he was still weighing a possible decision to testify as one of the most important decisions of his life uh, as LCN families in other parts of the country might. So this is an informant openly not worried about the families near him and more worried about families coming from across the country to kill him no respect. And to be honest, by this point in Cerrito's tenure, I'm genuinely shocked that there wasn't an attempt made on his life or an attempt uh, by him on the lives of some of his less loyal soldiers and associates, some of whom were likely informants. On top of that, with all the surveillance and rats, I really can't believe the FBI was never able to put a solid case together to take members of the family down. That's equally, equally shocking to me. But again, I digress. As you got into the 70s, things would not really get too much better for Cerrito's leadership and after the absolute mess that was the Life magazine lawsuit. 
Uh, in fact, the 70s would not start off that well at all for Cerrito. In January of 1970, Cerrito, along with his underboss Manny Filia, along with key administration members Steve Zicoli and Philip Marici, were named publicly as mafia leaders within Northern California, thus continuing to put the Cerrito family in the media spotlight, although without the fanfare or rigor typically seen with coverage of families back east. A few months later, Cerrito and another man would be sued by a man named Gary Vassar, a local investment counselor who at the time was running for the Democratic nomination for the 25th Assembly District within California. In the suit, Vassar alleged intent to defraud and undue influence was used in a purchase of a 27,000 square foot lot, which Vassar paid Cerrito and another man $135,500 for. Now, my guess is that Cerrito, using his reputation as a mob boss, was able to lean on the local businessman to make the deal. Just a month later, Cerrito, along with another famous name, California Governor Ronald Reagan, were sued as well, again over the sale, again for the amount of $135,000 of a parcel of land. So very similar. Uh, and although the second suit was eerily similar, uh, they were actually brought by two different people. So two different lawsuits a month apart about the same thing. And I'll just point out that yet again, that in other cities, a regular citizen would likely be too afraid to bring this type of a lawsuit against a sitting mob boss because of the obvious potential harm that might befall them. I mean, <laughs> I mean, can you see uh, someone trying to sue Tony Accardo? Uh, he'd literally have your eyes ripped out of your head. But again, uh, that sort of fear within the public doesn't seem to have been there with respect to Cerrito. And just a month after being sued for the second time in 1970, an article came out in the Los Angeles Times that connected Mayor Joseph L. Alioto uh, with Cerrito and others in the California Mafia. Now, just who was Joseph Alioto? Joseph L. Alioto served as the 36th mayor of San Francisco from 1968 through 1976, and he's probably most famous for delivering the nomination speech at Hubert Humphrey's 1968 presidential campaign, as well as a resurgence in crime under his mayorship, uh, as, as well as uh, one other infamous thing, uh, the case of the Zodiac Killer made headlines during his tenure. Now, going slightly backwards, in 1969, an article in Look magazine would allege that Alioto also had ties to Los Angeles mafioso and famous rat Aladina Jimmy the Weasel Fratiano, for which he'd sue the magazine. Uh, and this is something that I did see in FBI reports, uh, Alioto and Fratiano uh, being very close. And again, for Cerrito, just more bad press. Uh, and more time that he did not want in the spotlight. According to one report, Cerrito was concerned that the old snake in the grass, Joe Bonanno, who by late 1973 had been spending some time in the San Jose area, was trying to take over. So this the plot thickens even more for Cerrito. Apparently, Bonanno had made trips to San Diego to see Frank Bompensero, longtime member of the Los Angeles LCN family, as well as Denver, Colorado, to what I'd believe to be members of the Small Doan organization and or the Pueblo LCN. This part of the report was actually redacted, uh, allegedly in order to attempt to garner support to take over from Cerrito. And this sounds like Bonanno, again, 
trying to set up an outpost since he was kicked out of the mob in New York and kicked out of the mob in general, doing Bonanno-like things. So this fits. Uh, ultimately, this takeover would never really happen. But again, this is just more undercutting of Joe Cerrito, whose position at boss by this point was likely pretty tenuous. That being said, uh, given Bonanno's status with the commission, it really does surprise me that Bonanno somehow managed not to get himself whacked. But that's an entirely different subject, which we don't have time to, to, to talk about today. But uh, by 1975, members of the family who had been long tired of Cerrito would attempt to get him to step down as boss, efforts to which he was supposedly resistant. Uh, there were also articles a few years later, while Cerrito was still alive, laying out just how dissatisfied family members, specifically Angelo Marino, were with Cerrito's leadership and comparing the group, uh, and I, I think this fits, to Jimmy Breslin's gang that couldn't shoot straight. And this happened all while Cerrito was still alive, mind you. Uh, here's a small snippet from the article, and I really, uh, I think this kind of sums things up. Quote, for at least 15 years, Angelo Marino has been dissatisfied with the way the mafia has been run in the Santa Clara Valley. In fact, Marino's dissatisfaction with the stewardship of Joseph Cerrito, longtime head of the San Jose Mafia, has at times bordered on open contempt. As Marino saw things, Cerrito cost the family both money and mafia respect by holding himself and his men aloof from common street rackets. Members of Cerrito's family have confined themselves, according to law enforcement officials, largely to such legitimate ventures as auto agencies, orchards, bakeries, dry cleaning plants, and restaurants. All of which irked Marino, who reportedly yearned for more traditional mafia operations, including gambling, loan sharking, and extortion. End quote. So given everything that was going on and the level of contempt likely from more than just Marino, I'm again going to express that I'm really surprised that an assassination attempt wasn't made and unsurprised at the same time because by this point you can see that the family under Cerrito had a significant aversion to public crimes and though they were mafia, didn't seem to have the same level of aggression as other families around the country. It's also noted that Cerrito's health by this point was a limiting factor in his activities around 1975, and he had suffered uh, from a long-standing heart condition dating all the way back to the early 1950s. He would go on in 1975 to suffer a heart attack in December of that year, though he would survive. By 1976, Cerrito was notated as residing with his wife at their personal residence located at 16370 Mataliha Drive, forgive the pronunciation, in Los Gatos, California, and it was noted that he was virtually retired, though he'd continue to play a small role in his son's businesses. By that point, he had set his sons up with auto dealerships of their, of their own. Cerrito would continue on for this time as the titular head of the San Jose LCN. Uh, in 1977, there would be, and this is some finally some rough stuff, there would be a murder that would eventually come back to haunt members of the San Jose LCN family, and which we'll talk about far more in part two. Uh, in my research, this was really the only time the family got lethal, actually executed a contract, despite several previous plots. 
Now, long story short, a 24-year-old man named Peter Catelli made the mistake of trying to shake down Angelo Marino for $100,000, and it got him killed. And his father, who had tried to intervene on the son's behalf, shot. His father survived by playing dead and went on to name three suspects in the murder, Salvatore Marino, the son of Angelo, Angelo Marino himself, and a man named Thomas Napolitano, who was the man who'd allegedly driven Catelli to his murder site. As I said, uh, this case would have larger implications for the family that could have potentially trickled down to Cerrito himself, but by the time the case played out, Cerrito would be out of the picture. In July of 1978, Cerrito would be connected by the San Jose Mercury News to Nevada State Treasurer Mike Mirabelli with the paper accusing Mirabelli of accepting deals of automobiles from Cerrito as well as some additional illicit activities connected to organized crime. Uh, and that would really be it for Cerrito in terms of any connection to criminal activity, because before anything could really happen in that particular case, Cerrito would die on September 7th, 1978. Now, many reports have said that he died of, a, of an actual heart attack, but one FBI report I found, uh, and then several subsequent sources, revealed that he actually died during the course of an open heart surgery. Now, not that it matters as he was gone either way, but I like to, you know, as much as I can get the details right when I can. Uh, and this is just another example of sources like Wikipedia, uh, you know, when those types of sources can lead you, lead you astray. So he died on the operating table. Cerrito's funeral would end up being somewhat of a spectacle, uh, and, and the San Francisco Examiner would notate that his funeral was like his life part respectable and part gutter. Quote, Grief, anger, as Cerrito laid to rest. Los Gatos. The funeral of Joseph X. Cerrito was like his life, part respectable, part gutter. There, as Los Gatos town councilman Tom Ferrito serving as a pallbearer for the longtime local resident and businessman. And there was Cerrito's fellow businessman, California Cheese Company president Angelo Marino, said to be as deeply involved as he in mafia activities. Marino was angrily shouting at a photographer, introducing upon his mourning, your mother is a blank whore. Cerrito, dead of natural causes at age 67, had just been carried into St. Mary's Catholic Church in a solid bronze casket. His wife, Elizabeth, followed the casket, as did his three sons and their children. About 250 of his relatives and friends came to mourn his passing. From the four dozen roses in the casket spray to the graveside floral array at Santa Clara Mission Cemetery, there was no sign of ostentation. Cadillacs were outnumbered by Datsuns 12 to 11, and there was only one Rolls Royce. A gray-haired man in his early 60s, citing a photographer he mistook for a federal officer, thrust his chest in front of the lens and before a friend could intervene said, You want to eat that damned camera for dinner? End quote. As noted, Cerrito is buried in the Santa Clara Mission Cemetery in Santa Clara, California. Taking over for him as the family's next boss would be the man who was reported as screaming obscenities at the funeral, one Angelo Marino, who, who we'll cover in part two of the Cerrito family. Now let's close the, the proverbial book on Cerrito. All things considered, and I'm sure you'll agree after the conclusion of part two, 
of all the bosses of this relatively small family, I think you could probably put Cerrito's name at the top uh, in terms of the most successful era for the family, despite the clear strife that existed. And when I say most successful, I don't mean they made the most money. They probably could have made more money. Um, I don't mean they were the most feared. That's clear. They weren't. I don't mean Cerrito was the most respected. But if there's one thing you can take away, it's that Cerrito, um, he, he didn't get his family, you know, uh, you know, jammed up from a jail perspective. And I think that 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 uh, in and of itself is is pretty noteworthy and pretty commendable from for from a mob boss uh, perspective, just because. Uh, he was not the guy that was, you know, ordering, ordering hits every other day. He was not a psychopath. So he did keep his people out of jail, but at the same time, he also, it was clear to some degree held them down. Uh, and Cerrito wasn't by any means a gangster based on my research, but I do think the fact that he managed to continue to keep the family functioning despite the obvious scrutiny from law enforcement and eventually national media and the number of informants around the family, like I said before, it's commendable from what I can tell in my research. Now, you know, again, nail me in the comments if I'm wrong, but really nobody in the family in his era did serious jail time. And if you think about it, Cerrito may have been ahead of his time with respect to keeping a low profile. Certainly the Cerritos under his reign didn't have the glitz and glamour, nor the Hollywood-style murders that we're used to seeing, but he managed to stay out of prison and died uh, not in his own bed, but died not in jail, so to speak, uh, which of course is the primary goal of any Mafia Don. That being said, by the time his reign was, was over, the family had also dwindled in size and influence, and with other criminal elements moving in over the next several decades, the Cerritos really never again would seriously contend for significant power in the San Jose underworld. In the end, Cerrito wouldn't live to see the ultimate waning days of the crime family he headed for nearly 20 years. Interestingly enough, though, just three years before Joe Cerrito passed away, uh, the area, now better known as Silicon Valley, was about to, to undergo a major change as some company, some little company named Apple, was founded less than 10 miles away from Cerrito's auto dealership. Uh, and that was a peek into the, into the future that was to be. And by the 2010s, San Jose had the third highest GDP per capita in the world, not just the country, in the world, not just in their state, in the world, and has become the epicenter for tech giants like Apple, Google, Adobe, eBay, and many more. To end the episode ironically, the area as it stands today probably is more ripe for mafia-style corruption than ever before. It's just that the corruption has shifted to the boardrooms of tech giants instead of being out on the streets. The Dons these days are the startup founders who made billions, while the mafia Dons of yesteryear, they're in the ground. Now, of course, we've spent most of our time talking about the first two bosses of the family, but let's quickly talk about a few other allegedly made members who showed up in FBI reports. We'll just give a quick, uh, quick overview, quick rundown of the names. It's alleged in FBI reports that by the mid-1970s, the family had around 19 members, uh, and I did see other reports that indicated that maybe the family got a, as high as 25 to 30 members at its peak. 
The list I'm about to show you is members who were mentioned in reports in the 60s and 70s, some of whom may have been dead uh, by the time the figure of 19 was arrived at in the mid-1970s. So here's the list of names. Angelo Giamona, based in Modesto, California. Angelo Marino, future boss of the family and longtime capo. Anthony Bonafiello Maggio, uh, out of Redwood City, California. Anthony Scavuzzo, San Jose, California. Antonio Di Giovanni Dietri. Charles Stanley Carbone, who was uh, the longtime underboss. Dominic Ferrito, who, of course, was Cerrito's uncle. Dominic Anzalone. Donato Dietri. Emmanuel Manifilia, who would become future boss of the family after Marino and longtime Cerrito confidant and underboss. Filippo Filzicoli, who we know was longtime consigliere. Frank G. Buffa showed up in a lot of reports out of Modesto, California. Frank Fred Source uh, out of San Jose. Georgia Dragna, a former Pittsburgh member, transported out to San Jose. Gerald Joseph Gallo. Joe Piazza. Joseph Cusenza, Nicolo Ario Guastella, Peter Octavio Marici, Phil Marici, who we know was Consigliere, Prospect Salvatore Rule, Salvatore Andrea Vesolo, Salvatore John Costanza, lots of Salvatores, Salvatore Nick Cerrito, Salvatore Sal Marino, son of Angelo, Stefano Steve Zicole, Tom Nicosia, Vito Edragna, uh, and that was that was kind of the list. Those were many of the names uh, that I saw tied in to uh, be allegedly made members of the family. Okay, so that is it for another beast of an episode. Again, my plan is to keep covering lesser known families while working in content here and there on some more well-known entities. Uh, I appreciate the amazing amount of support you've given me uh, as we just passed 6,000 subscribers on YouTube. And of course, it's growing day by day. So I really appreciate that. Coming up next, I've got an amazing interview uh, potentially uh, coming down the pipe, as well as plans to get back into and finish the Angelo Bruno story. After those episodes, I plan to shift uh, shift gears and really focus in on the Castella Marese war, as well as digging into some fun anecdotal wiretap conversations I came across during the 1960s relating to the increased scrutiny coming from the Kennedy administration. And as I've said recently, uh, I'm still looking to do more interviews to sprinkle in between my more documentary style content, but not just any interviews. I'm specifically looking for people who have stories of running up against the mob, either as a result of being in that life, but more likely from people that you have no affiliation or from people that have no affiliation with the life whatsoever. So like I said in the last episode, it won't be your typical talking heads, or at least that's my goal. Uh, so if you think you're one of those people, email me at membersonlypodcastshow at gmail.com. 
Also, before you go, please don't forget to subscribe so that you can continue to enjoy my content as it's released. If you're already a subscriber, please share the show. I would really appreciate that. And if you have any thoughts, please leave them in the comments below on YouTube or write us a review on Apple. Lastly, feel free to check out our website at www.membersonlypodcast.com or follow me on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, I'm still a relatively small channel and could use all the help I can get to continue to grow. But until next time, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Members Only Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. You can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.